Welcome to EdTech Insiders. In this podcast, we talk to educators and educational technology investors, thought leaders, founders, and operators about the most interesting and exciting trends in the field. I'm your host, Alex Sarlin, an educational technology veteran with over a decade of work at leading EdTech companies. Welcome to the Week in EdTech. I'm your co-host, Ben Cornell, with my fellow EdTech insider, Alex Sarlin. It's the first week of May, and it is a hot mess in EdTech. We have a number of topics today, all of which have the pro side and the con side. Everyone's trying to figure out what's heads, what's tails, as we get ready for this sprint to the finish of the spring semester. Alex, welcome to the show. Excited to kick things off in the first week of May. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. It's a really nuts week right now. I think there's a lot to talk about. Before we jump in, I just wanted to pitch a couple of recent interviews that have been really interesting on the EdTech Insiders podcast. We spoke to Mario Vasilescu from Readocracy, who has a really interesting take about how to make online reading basically something that it can be rewarded and tracked and give people credit for what they do in their free time. Really interesting episode. And we recently talked to Eli Bildner from Guild Education, who also co-founded a school called the Rivet School, trying to get people to get their degrees in an efficient and effective way. Both great conversations. So if you haven't listened to those, jump in. They're fantastic. And you know, today we're going to try to go really fast and stay on time because there's so much to talk about. We want to make sure we cover everything. So we're going to give ourselves a five-minute time limit on each of our big five headlines, see if we can stick to it. You ready, Ben? Let's do it. Why don't you <laughs> kick us off with our first headline? Sure. So first headline is we're calling it Google Grow Good. And basically, Grow with Google, which is a Google-sponsored set of training courses online in partnership with Coursera, which constitute the most popular courses on Coursera right now, just announced this week that they're going to make the Grow with Google training free for up to 500 workers at every U.S. business. That is a pretty astounding offer. The ticket price of that would be about $100,000 a business, and they are giving that away for free. And that's training in UX, in data analytics, in IT, other hot topics like that. So my take on this is, wow, that is an incredible offer. And the Grow with Google courses have been this incredible success for Coursera. I happen to have been at Coursera when this was conceived. It was not conceived by me by any stretch of the imagination, but I saw the people sort of coming up with this idea and figuring out how to do it. And it has now reached, you know, 800,000 plus people all over the globe, created tons of jobs. It's been pretty amazing. And they're now expanding and expanding and offering it to everyone. Ben, what is your take on Grow With Google being free for every U.S. business? Well, Alex, I always appreciate your user-centric view, and it's definitely a good thing for consumers. But from an EdTech perspective, here we go again with Google giving away things for free and distorting the marketplace. How are you going to compete as an online courses provider with something that is infinite and free, which is basically Google's strategy for every product? And oh, by the way, it's just a rounding error for Google's overall business, which is basically selling ads. So, you know, I have I have some excitement about it from an access standpoint and availability standpoint, but having seen what they've done to, you know, K-12 LMS market, you know, Google Classroom being for free has destroyed 
that market. You know, seeing what they've been doing with their AI work and some of the other pieces in education where it shows so much promise, but then they can't internally get the resources to deliver on the full potential because that's not really their business. It really raises questions for me. And then the last thing is, you know, when something is free and, you know, people are giving it away over an extended period of time for free, you have to ask yourself, who's the product here? Or what's the product? And the answer is, you are the product. And so there is some way, shape or form in which, you know, Google will have to or will be monetizing off of this. And there's infinite ways they could go, whether it's, you know, getting to use their tools, their cloud infrastructure, etc. But I do worry about, you know, these big behemoth tech companies coming in and crushing meaningful business lines and industries that have no bearing on their overall, you know, bottom line, just so that they can attract or acquire more users to their other core products. I'm going to defend Google a little bit here, even though I think there's a lot of truth to what you're saying. Yes, there probably will be some Google products in the courses, definitely. And there definitely is going to be some strategy from within Google about having more and more people use their suite. That said, I think Google is also invested in just having a really well-educated, hireable population in the world. And I think they've seen universities sort of drop the ball. They've tried very hard to work in collaboration with lots of universities. But, you know, at the end of the day, they're sort of saying, hey, if we just go out on our own, then we can literally give this away for free. We don't have to partner with the university that wants to charge 10 grand for a certificate. So I'm still a little, I'm going to say thumbs up to Google for offering all this for free. But yes, market distortion. Yes, who's the product? Those are very fair questions to ask. I'm going to give myself the last word here because we're at the last minute. And let's move to the next headline. All right. Our second headline, student debt cancellation, good or bad? Some great articles this week around President Biden's consideration around canceling $10,000 of debt per American. And there's an article in Forbes around broad student debt cancellation would backfire There's also consideration of income caps for loan forgiveness. And paired with that is also some regulatory components around online certificates. An article in Heckinger Report shows that school online certificates don't actually have the return on investments that they may advertise. Case in point is a Purdue program that trains folks to be executive assistants for law firms advertising a $30,000 annual average salary. And then two or three years later, those who've completed that certificate program only have an average of 18000 in annual income. National Student Clearinghouse CEO Rick Torres also reported this week that national enrollment in higher education is down 6% and freshman enrollment is down 9%. So as we come to the fall semester, is going to be dark days for schools. And these online programs, which have not been positive ROI, have been positive ROI for the universities themselves. So it comes back to this whole financing question. Should we be canceling debt? Should the debt being offered for higher ed be tied to the efficacy of the programs? You know, what's your take on this, Alex? Yeah, it's a really complicated issue. And, you know, this may be my naivete speaking in terms of the actual downstream effects of debt cancellation, but 
To me, this is really what Biden is doing and what progressives are pushing him to do even more. They're fighting for $50,000 debt cancellation rather than 10. I think the case to be made for that is that you know, student debt has just outpaced everything for so long. It's become an enormous burden to families of all income levels, as well as kept a lot of people from going to college in the first place. And I think it's just, you know, you think about the role of government, and I think sometimes the role of government is to rein in industries that are not operating for the greater good. And I think, you know, I think the higher ed industry is sort of starting to have that characteristic. They are charging lots of money and not always having real return on investment or gainful employment, as the the laws tend to, to say. The other thing I would add to this, there's this really interesting theory for any listeners who have not heard of this. It's called Belmol's cost disease. That's B-A-U-M-O-L. It was a theory from the 60s from William Bowen, the ex-president of Princeton, and I think William Baumol, I might have his first name wrong, that basically says that services are always going to be cost more than goods over time because services are harder to replicate, especially sort of high-skilled services. And they use it to say that, you know, college tuitions will continue to go up even though other things should go down. And I think people have looked at this, you know, as a rationalization, as a possible economic justification for why tuitions have gotten so high. But in my opinion, the existence of online learning and the complete overproduction of the professor class in the U.S. over the last 10 to 20 years has really diminished that as a, as a reasonable case to be made. I mean, there's no good reason. And people are trying this now that there can't be affordable colleges that don't leave people in debt for many, many years. So I'm just on the face of it. I really, I would love there to be lots of student debt forgiveness, even if it disproportionately hits middle-class folks combined with some really strong laws about that schools have to give people gainful employment and, you know, cannot keep people in debt forever when they can't pay back their debt. It's just really nuts. What do you think, Ben? I think your points, especially around this cost disease concept, are really insightful. And I, you know, Alex, you should go to Capitol Hill and talk through this with (laughs) some of our legislators. I think the question on the loan forgiveness is, does this eventually translate to a bailout for higher ed? If you keep forgiving loans for the middle class or low income people, does it essentially let these schools off the hook for their value proposition or their return on investment? And this is where I'm most concerned because I do think that a number of schools have had kind of an industrial bloat since the 40s and 50s, where they've just been growing, they've been growing exponentially. Therefore, the cost has been growing exponentially. Therefore, the debt has been growing exponentially. And if we just solve the debt problem, we're not really addressing the core fundamentals. What makes me most concerned, though, is that we we are most likely to have a bifurcated system going forward if we do push on, yeah. on that button, because we'll end up having elite schools that can get away with charging half a million dollars a year for tuition. And that will be a small cluster of schools. And then the rest will all have to be low cost and, you know, leveraging technology for distribution and so on. And so I do wonder whether that will create an even bigger class divide in our systems. And, you know, really it will come down to 
what's the quality level of that distributed system, but also will the half a million dollar a year schools, you know, really lean into open access and full ride scholarships and things like that? Yeah, it's a great question. I guess my final thought on that would be, I'm not sure that would be a worse system than we have now if there is a relatively small number of very expensive elite schools, especially if they offer meaningful needs blind scholarships that most of them already do. And, you know, I mean, you could actually look at the parallel of very elite private high schools in the US, the boarding schools and high schools that cost, you know, exorbitant, crazy amounts. They only really reach a small subset of people. But the hope is that that becomes a different tier. And then you don't have this huge suite of middle tier colleges that are charging the same amount as your Yales and Columbia's, but not even offering meaningful outcomes. That's the fear. And I think that's where we've landed in the landscape now. And that's what makes me the most afraid that there's so many schools that you know people think they're going to have the same ROI as an elite school. They don't, but the cost is quite similar. It's a really complicated issue. But yeah, we'll see where it all goes. I really hope that those who make higher ed policy and, and the sort of decision makers around this loan forgiveness think it through from both a downstream effect and a political effect. You know, how is it going to be perceived? Will it be perceived as a bailout of the higher ed industry, as you say, or a bailout of middle class or upper middle class people who hold much of this debt? Or will it be seen as a, you know, a real, a powerful move towards redistribution and helping people, you know, put money back in their pocket to do other things. I don't envy them the decision. It's it's a hard choice to make. Fascinating topic and time will tell. We've started off with workforce. We've gone to higher education. Now let's go to my sweet spot, which is elementary and early childhood. We had some really interesting data come out this week around short-term gains, but potentially long-term pains with reading intervention and early childhood. Now, everyone knows it's kind of, you know, believed as canon in early childhood that if you can get kids to read by the time they're in third grade, they're going to be set up for success. And many of us point to the investment return for early childhood preschool programs and their ability to impact life outcomes. But some publications this week, one in Ed Week, showed that a program called Reading Recovery, which is kind of like the gold standard for reading intervention, it's a first graders program where it's a 30-minute one-on-one tutoring where the tutor keeps a running record of all the words that the first grader missed and then coaches them on the strategies based on their errors. It's showed incredible gains in literacy, 130% gains for first graders for just a semester-long treatment. Well, they've followed up with some of those students that were experiencing those great gains. And they, you know, constructed a randomized trial, which was actually quite interesting. It's not fully randomized, but they basically took CUSP students that either got admitted or didn't get admitted and then compared their performance by third and fourth grade. And what they showed is the students that were in reading recovery were actually a half a grade level behind those students who hadn't had the intervention by third or fourth grade. And it raises big questions around the long-term efficacy of one-on-one tutoring interventions. It also makes you wonder, what are the test scores? And do they capture all of the elements we should be shooting for to create long-term literacy? 
And so the defenders of the reading recovering program say, hey, we never claim to be a silver bullet. This needs lots of other supports over the long haul. But the fact that the treatment group performed worse than the non-treatment group for an intervention that costs five to $10,000 per student per year, that is pretty eye-opening. And then meanwhile, we also heard on the early childhood that on MindShift from KQED, they talk about the pandemic erasing a decade gain of public preschool access and quality. In a New Zealand journal, they're talking about the staffing crisis with preschools. So as we've been focusing about access, everyone should have preschool, everyone should have early childhood, the talent shortage has been extreme in early childhood. And so the quality has been really eroded. You're now in classes of one to 20. So on one extreme, we have one-on-one tutoring showing mixed efficacy over the long haul and preschool, which has just been like everyone's you know universal agreement that preschool is a good thing. Now the quality is eroding because of talent gaps. And it really makes us question like, what can we count on in terms of right. intervention to help all learners? As you hear this, what's your take? Yeah, I mean, I, I think these are three scary headlines all next to each other about the state of early childhood. And, you know, I, my mother was an early childhood educator. My wife's mother was an early childhood educator. We come from that background. I've worked in, in early childhood ed tech as well. And I think what is scary to hear when you hear about this stuff is that it's sort of coming from multiple angles that, you know, not only are there not enough enough qualified teachers to to teach in these classes and the teacher-student ratio is getting too high, but also they're not actually even sure which techniques are going to be at most effective. It's sort of like, it's scary to put all of these things on top of each other. It makes you sort of question the foundations of what we know and don't know about early childhood. I don't even know how to go much deeper than that other than, you know, I would hope this is, again, maybe naive, but I would hope that that's kind of longitudinal study that you're mentioning, Ben, where to say, oh, yeah, you get much better in first grade, but what does it mean in third or fourth grade? I'm hoping that, you know, technology could at least support studies like that because you are going to have students in the same program year after year giving data to the same Corpus. So, you know, if there's a childhood reading platform that can actually track students' reading level over multiple years, maybe this type of finding could be done on a more systematic basis rather than coming as this huge surprise later. Well, and from a product standpoint, I think it's also a good reminder that what leads to gains in one grade level or subject area may not be universally applicable developmentally. Right. So, technical reading skills. And reading fluency does not necessarily convert to reading comprehension, per se. And so when we're building our products, really understanding what niche are we serving and how do we do that really well, but don't just focus myopically on one score. Think about, okay, around the corner, how am I setting this up for that learning group, whether they're, you know, 85-year-olds or five-year-olds, you know, how can we scaffold the learning developmentally to support them. All right. Yeah. Number four. So we've talked about, you know, career, higher ed and K-12. Now we're going even off ed tech and back into the offline world. Tell us about it, Alex. Yeah. So an interesting set of headlines this week, all about sort of how in the post pandemic or, you know, what we all hope is the the post pandemic era, 
education is starting to look a little bit like it's going to backslide or I'd call it backslide, but move back offline. And there are a couple of different reasons for this. There's a sort of perceived lack of engagement in online learning. There's a perceived lack of quality in online learning. There's the perceived increase in cheating when you have, you know, students distributed. And there are also actually some tutoring I said some staff crises where, you know, some of the tutoring companies that have grown really large or different kinds of companies that have grown don't have enough people on staff to be able to support as many schools as they'd like. So, for example, you know, one of these is we saw EdTech Unicorn, Indian Unicorn Vedantu start to slash its course costs by up to 70%, which is, you know, as people sort of go back to regular schools. And part of their thinking there is they're slashing course costs, but also trying, it seems like, to start integrating more artificial intelligence and sort of offer something that's more scalable is, I think, the plan there. And so you can sort of see this feeling of, okay, if we kept our costs very high by having all human tutoring and all human supports, then people might start canceling contracts and moving away as they have to go back and pay in-person teachers. So we're going to try to offer our supplemental service that's less money, but still stay really involved. It's an interesting strategy. And I think you're going to see other companies sort of pursue similar things, especially in the tutoring space. You also saw a headline about in Washington, D.C. area schools in Virginia and and Maryland and D.C., they're starting to really move away from online learning in a very systematic way. They're saying it will not be an option for next year. It'll be very low numbers. And this is based on some research from McKinsey and others saying that the online environment has, has actually push students behind up to, you know, four months in math and reading. So there's this feeling of during this pandemic, when everybody was sent home, there were sort of no plans and everybody had to go to online learning. There was a real learning loss, a very measurable, serious learning loss. So people are starting to blame online learning as a medium for it. That's not great for the space. And personally, I don't think it's true. I think that was emergency online learning, but you can see the sort of political and at policy stance starting to move back. And the last one was we saw ProctorU, one of the main integrity, you know, cheating detection solutions in EdTech, put out a report saying that their cheating online has hit a record high with one out of 14 students cheating, according to their estimates, which is higher than we've ever seen. So there's also going to be a little bit of, you know, if there isn't already feeling of integrity issues when you don't have the classic, you know, proctor in a room watching the students, making sure they don't, you know, look at their notes or all of these old fashioned kind of things. So I think this spells a little bit of something a little bit scary for the ed tech world. You know, I think we've all had a real opportunity during the pandemic to shine and step up. But I think that, you know, the emergency nature, the fact that students are experiencing huge mental health crises, that parents were out of work or having to go to work and leave their children created this huge, perfect storm of problems. And now online learning is getting some of the blame for those problems. They're saying, oh, it's the online learning environment that's causing this. What do you think about these headlines, Ben? I think all your points are great points. And yet on the flip side, online learning does have some things, some responsibility to take for the kind of levels of engagement and the return on investment. I think people often equate the kind of ROI calculation of a learner based on the price that they're going to pay and then some future earnings. But let's also remember that people are spending time. Whatever their time is that they're using on an online course, they could be using it in an in-person course or doing something else that's like money-making. And what we learned in K-12, at least, is that 
school's social benefit was first childcare, second connecting with peers, and third was the learning. <laughs> and I actually think that the folks in higher ed and workforce kind of said, well, that may be true for them, but not for us. Well, the reality is when paired head to head against an in-person learning experience and an online learning experience, when time is equal and cost is marginally different, people are going to choose the in-person because human learning in groups in person is powerful. So we really need to push our online learning platforms to go the next level in creating that connection. I do wonder about the strategy of dramatically dropping price. Would that actually make someone say, well, I'm willing to have a inferior learning experience, but it's so much dramatically cheaper, I would do that. For technical skills, I could totally see that happening. But I do wonder about that time value prop. Yeah. A very interesting space. And also the point you made about cheating and trust online. I think the industry bears a lot of culpability for that and needs to find good ways to safeguard and authenticate student learning and work. Well, that was the main four headlines. We always close with a roundup of funding and M&A highlights. Alex, why don't I take funding and you take the M&A? On the funding side, it's a little bit of a journey around the world. In Asia, the James Murdoch firm Bodhi Tree invested $600 million in India's Allen Career Institute. We've been watching India a lot on this show. $600 million in these in-person coaching and test prep organizations or institutions. They are a direct competitor with Akash, which was purchased by Baiju's. And it does go to show that this blend of in-person and online is really working in India. Very exciting to see what goes on there as that market progresses and as access explodes. Also, the OutSchool of Korea just scored a $10 million Series A investment. It's called Glorang. And it values the firm at $40 million. And it has just incredible adoption rate. Asia Pacific is just growing exponentially with online learning adoption. Rounding it out in Europe, Stonespeak invested a billion euros in Inspired Education Group. I'm quite familiar with IEG. They have a bunch of elite schools, 70 premium schools in 20 countries. And those schools tend to send 90% of their students to an elite university this is basically a privatization of the school sector that has largely been government dominated in continental Europe. So it definitely bears watching. And then Galena, which is based out of Brazil, is essentially creating an upwork skill-based marketplace for young people to get jobs. And as I've talked to entrepreneurs in South America, one of the biggest challenges is the unemployment rate of young people between 18 and 24, and they're eager to gain the skills to get jobs both at home, but also, you know, remotely. And there's not enough capacity or capability in the higher education system to fuel that. So Galena, one of a number of companies that I think will be filling that need coming up. On the M&A front, what do you have for us, Alex? So we had four acquisitions that are interesting. They're really about 
relatively big companies supplementing their existing offerings. So first off, we see eLearning Brothers acquired Core Axis. These are both basically instructional design and training studios that create learning experiences. eLearning Brothers is, is a pretty big name in the space. And this sort of, and Core Axis it provides corporate training and augmentation. So basically, this is a merger of two companies that's going to create an even more of a powerhouse for eLearning Brothers in terms of being a sort of go-to place for instructional designers with over two and a half thousand contract instructional designers on call. We saw Pearson acquire Mondly, which is a language learning platform that has 40 languages and, you know, all these different language pairs in its app. So that is a move in Pearson to supplement their existing language offerings with some online self-study. I would be surprised if that wasn't at least partially in response to companies like Busu and Babbel and Duolingo and, you know, others in the space that have gone incredibly huge audiences through their self-study apps. I think Pearson is saying this could be something we, we offer in conjunction with our other offerings. We saw Snap Mobile, which is an administrative support platform for high school coaches and group leaders, acquire two companies. One is called 8 to 18, which is for athletic directors. So that matches the high school coach demographic, sort of adjacent demographic, and a company called School CNXT. That might be School CNext, which is a multi-language translation and messaging tool. So those seem like natural acquisitions to expand the capacity for a business that is all about creating smooth administrative solutions. You get translation in there and expand to athletic directors from coaches. And then lastly, in India, we saw Indian EdTech Unicorn Upgrad acquire a data science institute, Insofe, I may be getting that completely wrong, Insofi, which is in a $33 million deal in equity stake. And basically, that's going to be a content acquisition deal, I believe, where they're basically trying to build out you know, a high-quality data science arm of content. And rather than having to build it themselves, they acquire a proven one from this company, Data Science Institute, Insofe. So I don't think any of these are super surprising. I'm a little surprised about the Pearson Mondley one. It seems I would love to hear the sort of thinking behind that, but I would guess it's about competing with existing B2C apps. But it's very interesting to see companies continue to merge and expand their offerings. And, you know, we have a conversation coming up with Cambium Education, which is a great portfolio company that does exactly this, has put together a whole set of companies to do the really wide variety of offerings. That's it for M&A. Great. Thanks, Alex. I'm excited to transition us to our interview with Ashley Anderson Zantop. She is the CEO and chairwoman of Cambium. Cambium Learning Group just named her the CEO at ASU GSV, and they have products like Lexia and Cambium Assessments. They're in 94% of schools in America, 20 million plus students served. Ashley, it's so great to have you on the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Your career is so inspiring. It's an incredible journey from publishing to ed tech to now leading one of the largest education enterprises in not just America, the world. One of the big questions that we ask everyone is, how are you navigating this post-COVID reality? What has changed? What's similar? What's different? Great question. I think we ask ourselves that question at Cambium every day. As a little bit of context, since you brought it up, yes, I've been working in pre-K-12 education for more than 25 years. And a big part of the reason that our purpose at Cambium 
is so meaningful to me is that I actually began my career as a classroom teacher and a collegiate coach. And I studied education models in the U.S. and Scandinavian classrooms. And I come from a family of educators and academics and entrepreneurs. So, you know, I really do know firsthand how critical the work that we do is to student success. And I'll be honest, I would have been a better teacher if I had access to some of the solutions that Cambium Mm -hmm. provides. Full me a culpa, I can absolutely say that. Same. And a big part of the motivation when I made the jump from the classroom to business was that I was impatient to figure out how to have an impact at scale. And, you know, I, I really thought that media and technology in a business setting was the best way to do that. And this was when people still rented VHS tapes in video rental storefronts. So let's keep that in mind in terms of the technology we were talking about at the time. You know, since then, really, the speed of innovation has increased so exponentially that, you know, we've moved, those of us in the space who are thinking about how to serve students and how to serve educators, you know, have moved from shipping DVDs and CD-ROMs and, you know, that kind of stuff to leveraging AI and machine learning at scale to provide personalized learning experiences for students and real-time reporting for educators. And in addition to all of that, I think some of the things that the response to the pandemic has ultimately force accelerated is things that we think about a lot in the space, and many of your listeners do, like the proliferation of devices in the classroom, necessary investments from an equity perspective in broadband. You know, the other thing that we don't talk about as much in the space as education providers, but I think is critically important is when all of, you know, sort of the response to the pandemic, lockdowns, remote learning, et cetera, happened, companies also went through real transformations to remote work. And that, I think, also has created greater empathy by technology providers for customers, for administrators, for educators, for students, adopting and using technology either for the first time or for the first time at the scale and with the consistency than some of what we've been doing for the last two years has required. So, you know, before the pandemic, yes, we had lots of partially distributed and hybrid teams who moved immediately to fully remote and figuring out how to collaborate, engage, innovate effectively at scale, support customers effectively at scale, fully remotely, that creates a lot of new understanding and empathy for what educators, administrators, and students are having to go through. And I think has led to a lot of increased innovation and a lot of increased appreciation. I think it's also forced us to think very, very, very critically about the role of effective implementations and professional learning and development as part of success when leveraging technology and education. You can have the greatest solution in the world, but if you can't implement with fidelity and you can't support your users through that process and they have a terrible experience with that, you have nothing. You're not solving any problem. You're not filling any need or closing a gap. So I think the human side of implementation and efficacy has become also front and center, not only at Cambium, but an issue throughout the industry that we hear leaders in education talking about either in good ways or in negative ways. And we want to be sure that we keep that always as a North Star 
and a top priority. It's a it's an amazing family of products. So you know when we look at the you look at the Cambium portfolio, you have a variety of different products for K twelve literacy products and STEM products and assessment. And we wanted to know, you know, how do you balance the collective interest of Cambium with the individual needs of each product? And do you see this sort of integrated portfolio with different offerings as the future of education? That's a great question. You know, I think our approach at Cambium is a little different than others in the space. Our playbook around this is defined and designed entirely around our customer, you know, the teachers, the students we're supporting, the administrators we're supporting, and the specific problem that we're solving or the specific need that we're filling for that customer. And, you know, we refer to that as our value proposition, of course, but we think about that in terms of, are we doing the best job that can possibly be done at the job that we've been hired to do by our customer, the gap that we've been asked to fill or the need we've been asked to address, the problem that we've been asked to solve. And those specific needs, opportunities, and challenges in K-12 education are unique. So while we think about what we have as a portfolio of offerings, and we think about being very intentional about where the greatest areas of need and where the biggest pain points are in education, when we think about our portfolio, each one of our solutions is designed to be the best that it can be, to do the best job that it's hired to do by our customers, which means we zero in on that focus and we build all of our go-to-market, all of our customer teams, customer-facing teams, and our product development teams around being the best at that need. So those products really are, and those solutions are differentiated and laser-focused on being the best that they can be at that challenge. So we don't think about how do we balance the need or the demands around this product or this solution or this product or this solution. We think about each. What are we doing here? And are we doing the very best job at this thing that we can be? Are we the trusted partner? Are we the subject matter expert at this? And that's how we think about that for each of our solutions. So we're not in a trade-off position. We're going to focus on this. We're going to focus on Mm. that always focusing on the problem that we're trying to solve for our customers. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And one of the pieces of feedback or insight that we get from a lot of folks we talk to on the show and just people out in the industry is customer acquisition cost is incredibly high barrier. And for a single product, lifetime value can be very low. So if you have high customer acquisition costs and low lifetime value, it can be really challenging. You know, tech budgets in particular are usually 1% of total operating budget. But I'm kind of connecting the dots from some of the things that you had said. One is like you're coming from a customer-centric rather than product-centric standpoint of, okay, what are the diversity of needs of this customer? And then how do we pull the tools off the shelf to meet those needs? And that can, from a business standpoint, also drive up lifetime value. I'm also, you know, thinking about your earlier comment around services and implementation, and it's not just the product itself, the 
kind of technical innovation, but what's also the adaptive change or how do we support them to grow through that? And one of our last podcast guests said the dirty little secret of education is that many of these businesses require a services business to implement. So when you are thinking about product, I can totally hear there's a laser focus on how are we the best. And it sounds like from a sales standpoint, it's a portfolio or, you know, your sales go to market team really thinks about solution selling to the customer and pulling those off on customer success. Do you have like a holistic approach to when you implement with the district? Do they kind of have one success team that then integrates all of the products into a unified rollout and implementation strategy? Or is it case by case? Like, how do you manage that? Yeah, great question. So I think that comes back to kind of that early sort of special playbook at Cambium. We organize our business units and therefore the products that they are responsible for based on that value proposition that I described. So are we accelerating literacy skill development? Are we helping to build competent mathematicians and scientists? Are we, what's the value proposition that we're bringing? And each of those value propositions has a dedicated go-to-market team because that's the whole thing about being a subject matter expert. That's the whole thing about being a trusted partner is that you really need to know what you're talking about. You have to be a subject matter expert and you have to be a trusted partner. And we know that the challenges around these things, yeah, there are overlapping challenges, but the needs and requirements are different and differentiated. Sometimes even the decision makers around these things are differentiated. So it's really important to us that we have dedicated go-to-market teams that are focused on solving a specific set of problems, addressing a specific set of needs. And those teams are a combination of sales teams, customer success teams, implementation teams, professional learning teams. And so that group, that differentiated group, can ensure that our customers are completely successful implementing the solutions that are solving a problem or filling in a particular need. And to us, that is really the difference. That is how you create really great experiences and improving academic outcomes for students is by being laser focused on that. And that's important. That's critical. And that's where scale does come in because, yep, that's challenging. That's challenging to do if you don't have the scale to do it with fidelity and to do it well. Yeah. And just a note on that, you're already in 94% of school districts in America, making you one of the largest education organizations in the world. And, you know, when we talk to entrepreneurs, they're often thinking about, do we join one of these larger organizations that has great scale and has great channel? But I can also hear that, you know, there's the algebraic formula of how do I grow? You're doing like a level of calculus here, where it's not just like, how does this product fit in with this customer, but how does it create a comprehensive support for the solution set or needs of the customer. So very, very interesting. Alex, why don't you wrap us up with our last question? Sure. So what advice do you have for education entrepreneurs that are navigating this landscape of new opportunity and new challenges? And in particular, I'm curious about, you know, because Cambium is a group that is a family of different brands, you know, how do you see a smaller player responding to big incumbent players? Should they be picking a niche and trying to do something specific or working sort of alongside in the same 
structure and sort of synergistically with big, very, very widely distributed tools like Cambium? Yeah, great question. So first of all, I would say out there to any entrepreneurs who think that they are serving and supporting teachers and students better than anyone else in some way, please come talk to us. We would love to talk with you. (laughs) Open invitation. I will say that first. I think the second is some advice is consistent across scale and maturity. And, you know, some pieces of advice that I think are consistent across scale and maturity, having worked at all levels of maturity, everything from startups and JVs to mature businesses at scale, I would say boil down to a few simple things. The first is tenacity. You know, this space, K-12 education in the U.S. and around the world, but in the U.S. in particular, is fragmented, right? We know that there's federal funding and federal legislation, but to the greater extent, most funding and most legislation that impacts education happens at the state level. And so that means we have to be excellent at solving a problem, filling a need, creating a solution for educators and students where they are. And so that takes real tenacity, right? It takes real tenacity to learn all of those things, learn where the challenges and opportunities are. And so if it's really meaningful to someone, and this is something that they really want to do, boy, you got to have some grit. (laughs) (laughs) So that's true across whatever scale you're operating at. And then the second thing I would say that relates to that is you also have to have tremendous empathy, tremendous Mm. empathy for your customers and for your teams. You know, I think it's really critical to stop and think about the experience from your customer's perspective. And I mean, all stakeholders in your customer journey. So not only the decision maker and the folks who get to decide how funding is spent, but also all of the stakeholders who are going to be tasked with implementing, with making something successful. So you really have to be thinking about UX and user experience all the way through the process from the very first moment that you're even having a conversation about the solution through implementing and maintaining it as a successful solution that meets the objectives that it's set out to accomplish for your customer. And that in itself takes grit because there are so many different perspectives you need to take on board and it matters so tremendously. So at the same time, you also have to have empathy for your teams, thinking about the challenges they're going through so that they have the emotional bandwidth and energy to be empathetic to customers. And that brings me to the last point that I think is a piece of advice that travels across scale, which is allyship. You know, we really each need strong, supportive allies of all kinds, even sometimes just to hear us out (laughs) when we're grappling with something and to think through something through us or to sponsor us or support us as we're going through this journey. And I think one of the points that people miss most often about allyship and building great allies is that the best way to build great allies is to be one. Mm. which means you really have to invest in taking an interest in the challenges and opportunities that other people are experiencing and figuring out how to support them, what you can do, whether that's your customer, whether it's your internal teams, whether it's your colleagues, somebody else in the space, those things matter. And those kinds of meaningful relationships, truly meaningful relationships, not just sort of a transactional kind of networking sort of scenario, but truly meaningful relationships are where some of the best work in the space gets done. And I can't emphasize that enough for people who are looking to make an impact in the space. 
Yeah. So just to summarize, so grit and tenacity, empathy for everyone in the journey and allyship and build real relationships. I think that's amazing advice for entrepreneurs. Ashley, it's so great to have you as an ally for the show and for the space. And thank you for these words of wisdom. If you have a child in a K-12 school in America, you are likely a user or participant in one of Cambian's many companies. It includes Lexia, Learning A through Z, Voyager Sopris. It's a great company. And we're so grateful to have you, Ashley, at the top, leading the charge with empathy, allyship, and grit and tenacity. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you both. It was really a pleasure to be here. Well, that wraps up our show for this week, first week of May. It is a cluster in EdTech, but if it happens in EdTech, you'll hear it here on the Week in EdTech from EdTech Insiders. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to this episode of the EdTech Insiders podcast. If you liked the episode, remember to subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave a rating and review so others can find the podcast. For more EdTech Insiders content, subscribe to the EdTech Insiders newsletter at edtechinsiders.substack.com.